Let's open our Bibles, please, to Psalm 128, 128th Psalm. And this is domestic happiness, if you want to title these uh, six verses. Domestic happiness. And if you will look at it, it says in verse 1, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. Now, the God-fearing man is a happy man. Honoring God makes us happy. In fact, in the first psalm, it says, uh, it says, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And you've heard me quote it time and time again. But that very first word, blessed is the man, is really plural. It means blessednesses or happinesses are to the man. There's a multiplied number of blessednesses to the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, is Psalm 1. And so here it is. Also, the God-fearing man is a blessed man. And the walk of the of the man of God. Notice it says, that walketh in his ways. Uh, if you're a God-fearing man, you'll walk in the ways of God. If you reverence God, you don't want to walk in the ways of the world or the ways of your own pleasing. But you want to walk in the ways of God. The Bible says, Enoch walked with God and was not found, for God took him. In Genesis 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God. And then in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then it says in the ninth verse that Noah walked with God. So Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. In the book of Amos chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? So we find if we're going to walk with God, we not only have to be God-fearing, but we have to be God-agreeing. We have to agree with His Word and what He teaches us and how to walk. A lot of people say, I want to walk with God, but then when God lays down His Word straight and, and narrow as it is, a lot of people want to walk a different way. That, that doesn't work. If you want to walk with God, you have to walk within the bounds of His Word. You can't stray off here and there. And then it says in verse 2, For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. He is allowed to enjoy the benefits of his work. The Bible tells us that we are to enjoy the labor of our hands. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's several passages that tells us that a, man's, that a man may eat of the, the work of his hands, the fruit of his labor, and enjoy it. But the lazy man cannot claim this promise, by the way. In the book of Proverbs chapter 6, beginning with verse 6, it says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider his ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When, thou, when wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands uh, to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. You see, the, the sluggard, go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways. There's another one that says the sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in the harvest and have nothing. Now then, if we don't plow just because the weather's not suitable or just because it's a little cold or if we don't do our work just because things are not right, or we might put it this way, if we don't go out and sow our seed and do the work of God just because maybe there's cold reception, then we will not have a harvest either. You know, it's not always acceptable for a man to witness. Sometimes people reject it. But nevertheless, we need to be faithful to God's Word at the proper time and place. Uh, you remember Paul told, told Timothy, he says, Preach the Word and be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. 
So he said, be instant what? In season and out of season. So the workman will be rewarded and enjoy the benefits of his labor. Look at verse uh, 3. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Now then, wealth alone will not bring happiness. A fruitful wife, loving, love and kindness and understanding and care is, much, is worth much more than all the wealth that you could have. Lovable children add to the happiness of the home. In Proverbs 10 verse 1, it says, A wise son maketh a glad father. It says, But a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Bring that down and relate it in our own lives. Lovable children add to the happiness of the home. Let me give you that. Proverbs 10.1. That's a good scripture to put in your memory bank. A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. How many mothers have grieved over the foolishness of sons who go astray? How much grief does it bring? You know, I'm afraid that... Now, it's true that fathers and mothers should be what they ought to be to their children. But it's also true that many... Fathers and mothers are grieving much because of the way children have sometimes rebelled and gone astray, even though they've been taught to do the right thing. You see, you can teach children right, and that doesn't mean that they will not rebel at some point in time. But we still should bring them up in nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the Bible says, when he is old, he will not depart from us. So we have to take God's word that there will be a return to that which they've been brought up in. You know, we said wealth alone does not bring happiness. Remember the rich rich man in his farms and his great harvest in the field? He said, I have much goods to bestow uh, more than I can bestow in my barns, and I'll build greater barns. And he says, I have all this laid up for many days. And he said, their soul eat, drink, and be merry, well supplied. And the Bible says, thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Let me read a verse of Scripture in Psalm 37. Listen to this one. In verse 16, it says, A little that a righteous man hath, listen, is better than the riches of many wicked. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Have you ever seen folks that just said, Oh, if I had all that wealth, or if I had that much money, or if I had that much of something, I'd be happy. No, you would not. You're just dreaming. Because with those riches comes worries. And responsibilities. In fact, you'd probably worry that somebody would take it away from you. And most likely they will get part of it. You get a few crooks around, thieves and various other connivers. And first thing you know, I feel so sorry for elderly people nowadays, for these con artists that get them on the telephone or even out in public in other ways of connection to them and take their money away because they promise them a a whole lot of increase for uh, so, so much investment. Put in five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, and we're going to turn it into twenty or twenty-five for you. And whether it's that amounts or not, but they—they're con artists out there. And if they tell you something that's too good to be true, it probably is, and it'll probably never happen. In fact, probably you'll lose all of that that they're trying to bank on you investing. Be careful about that kind of a thing. As much as I'm against all the lottery, I think I just about as soon put my chances on that. And that's nothing. You won't get it there either. But, you know, that would be horrible to, to save up all your life and let some con artist jip you out of it. And, you know, back east, I got uh, some information from my brother and sister-in-law. 
that was here, Bert, you know, that goes down to Mexico and does things down there during the Christmas season. But anyway, they sent me some information on gambling back in, back in that part of the country. And they, they were telling about a certain family that mortgaged their home for forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 and bought it all in lottery tickets. Can you imagine anyone that foolish? Thinking that if they had that many, they were sure they lost it all. And they lost their home. You know, that's foolish. And you'd be surprised that people, and I've known people here in Rio Dosa that would do uh, not on that scale of loss, but do as foolish of things just to go down to the racetrack and bet on the horses. I won't tell who it is, but I knew a man one time that would get money. He'd buy groceries on credit and get money on his grocery bill to go down and put on, add it to his grocery bill and go down and put it on the horses. Now that's sad when a man can't even buy groceries for his family and then adds to it, isn't it? That's, that's, that's foolish. And that kind of person is addicted. That kind of person needs to be helped. And it's real sad. And I've known that experience here. And as I say, you know, it's just that people think that there's a way out to get rich by gambling. And gambling's getting a great hold on this whole nation. Did you know that? It's getting a great hold on them. And people think to solve their problems, they can go to Las Vegas and get it all solved. Yes, you'll go there and you'll be more in debt and you'll end up worse off. Well, you will go there and you put something in and you get out a hundred or two dollars and you come back and say, boy, I'm ahead of the game. The next time you go, you're in debt and mortgaged. Just a little winning doesn't mean it's a sound thing. Don't go with that kind of an idea. Live for God, serve God, and God will bless you. The blessed man is described here, one that works for his uh, food and labor. For thou shalt eat of the labor of thine hands. Verse 2. Alright, we're talking about uh, the blessings now. Lovable children add to the happiness of the home. Proverbs 10 verse 1, we gave you that. Verse uh, 4 says, uh, well, let's read verse 3. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. What a fruitfulness that is. Behold that thus... Shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord? It's repeating again, the man that fears God. In verse 5 says, The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. His blessings come through Zion. Zion, where he went to worship. 134. Look at Psalm 134. You probably just have to turn a page and read verse 3. The Lord hath made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. The Lord hath made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. Zion is the place of worship. You know, God's man cannot ignore the place of public worship and claim the promises of God. Someone has say, well, I can worship God anywhere. Sure, you can worship God anywhere. But also there is, a, there is a place that we're to assemble together. The Bible says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. What? But exhorting one another. How are you going to exhort one another if you're under one tree and this guy's under another tree over here five miles away? You're not going to exhort one another. You can pray for one another at that distance. But to exhort one another, you have to be together. And you can pray better for one another when you're together too. It doesn't mean that there's any limit to distance as far as prayer. And we do pray for people. In, we pray for, the, uh, for Randy's uh, brother-in-law down in Fort Worth. And God hears from any distance. But there is a designated place of worship that we're to assemble together. And you cannot ignore that and then claim all of God's blessings. It says here, 
the Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. And then we gave you a New Testament reference, which is Hebrews 10, verse 25, to assemble together. And thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. And then it says, Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, grandchildren, add to the happiness of in our last days. A man that has grandchildren, he's really blessed. You're fortunate to have grandchildren. Let me read something for you. In the book of uh, Proverbs again, chapter 17 and verse 6. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6. It says this, Children's children... Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. You see that? Children's children, so grandchildren are the crown of old men. And it says, and the glory of children are their fathers. It works two ways. The children glory in their fathers. And so it's a wonderful thing. The last thing we might say is that the last verse says, and peace upon Israel. Back to Psalm 128, holds your place. The last statement says, and peace upon Israel. As goes the home, so goes the nation. Godly homes produce peace. Look at that last verse again. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. With this kind of a home life, there is peace. All right, let's look at Psalm 129 quickly. And this is the afflicted but not destroyed. Afflicted but not destroyed. It says, many a time have they afflicted me from my youth. May Israel now say, and let's read verse 2. Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. So Israel was afflicted. And Israel was afflicted from the very start. Israel was afflicted by Egypt. Remember their affliction in Egypt? Israel was afflicted by Amalek, the very first one that they met against when they came out of Egypt. The Amalekites. By the Midianites later in the... Land in the land of Canaan. They were afflicted by the Philistines time and time again. And by Assyria and by Babylon, by Rome and numerous others. Jesus was also afflicted from his youth. By Herod. Herod sought to kill him when he was born. By his own people. His own people would not receive him and turned against him. By Pilate. And you know the righteous are afflicted. Psalm 34. Listen, verse 19 says... Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You you might say, well, you know, I'm trying to live right, and yet I have afflictions. But it says, out of them all. The Lord delivereth them out of them all. How would you know that you were ever delivered if you didn't have any afflictions? He keeps us from many troubles, but He delivers us out of many troubles too. Peter says, if need be, You're in manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. And sometimes it needs to be. He says if it needs to be. I think it's uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. And and then you read verse 7. It says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Though be tried with fire. Might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. That's not the exact words. Paraphrasing it. So, you find that afflictions sometimes are a test of our faith. And here, that verse I read to you says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but out of them all the Lord delivered them. Look look at something else in this first verse. It says, in verse 2 I should say, Yet they have not prevailed against me. So, affliction does not mean defeat. That's what I wanted to speak to you about. 
Affliction does not mean defeat. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 8, Paul says this, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, he says persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body of the, the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And he goes on and on in that uh, strain of thought. You see, it does not mean defeat. And then back in our text, in Psalm 129 again, look at verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The persecutors do a thorough work. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4. Let's see. Isaiah 50 and verse 6 it is. Uh, it says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. We know that Jesus went through these kind of things when he was persecuted before the cross and on the cross. He was scourged, he was crowned with a crown of thorns, and they smote him, and the Lord looked down upon him and delivered him out of all that, through death and resurrection. The lot of the wicked is described in the next verse. It says uh, in verse 4, The Lord is righteous, he hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked. He does the right thing by liberating the righteous, and he tells us what the wicked really are. In verse 4, And then verse 5, let them all be confounded and turned back that hate Zion. He's going to confound them and turn them back. In verse 6, let them be as grass upon the housetops which wither before it groweth up. Grass upon the housetop never grows to maturity. Some of the housetops in those days had grass growing on the top. The grass upon the housetop is not reaped or used. And it's good for nothing. It's left to wither. It says in verse 7, Wherewith the mower filleth not his hand, nor he that bindeth sheaves his bosom. Verse 8 says, Neither do they which go by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. See, the wicked do not have the blessings of the Lord. But it says, We bless you in the name of the Lord. They don't find that. Neither do they which go by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. I'd rather have the Lord's blessings than to have that lot that is supposed, that is uh, given to the wicked. I don't want you to look at Psalm 130, if you will. Psalm 130. It says, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Where he cried? Out of the depths. Regardless of how low we get spiritually, we are not to give up in despair. Remember in Psalm 40, it says, He brought me up out of a horrible pit. The Lord heard my cry and brought me up out of a horrible pit. That's that's an awful place to have to cry from, isn't it? A horrible pit. What about the the prophet Jonah? In Jonah chapter 2, let me read this beginning verse 1. You'll find Jonah in his despair and the place that he prayed from. It says, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, uh, his God, out of the fish's belly. Well, that's a bad place to have to pray from, isn't it? Remember, the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah when he rebelled and he tried to run away from God. Some people are being swallowed up by whales today. They're running away from God and they don't know what swallowed them up. See, Jonah was swallowed up literally by, by a great fish. The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
In chapter 2, verse 1, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. He believed in the resurrection, didn't he? He believed he was in the place of death, but he believed God was going to bring him out of it. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depths closed me round about, and the weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottom, bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. This is what he felt in the fish's belly. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came unto thee, unto thine holy temple. And by the way, look at verse 8. He just threw this in. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. I guess that's the lesson he learned where he was praying. If you get in a situation like Jonah was, and only in a spiritual sense, and you feel like that you're swallowed up with all the, the depths of hell and the billows and waves of God's judgments are uh, rolling over you, if you come to the place and you say, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies, he realized what got him there. And then he says, but I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that thou I have vowed. And then he said, salvation is of the Lord. He knew that if there was any deliverance, it had to come from God. And then what did that happen? And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. You see, when you come to the place in all your misery, in all your affliction, that you'll turn to God and say, salvation is the Lord. Turn it over to God. He's going to get rid of it. He's going to get you out of that problem. We have to completely depend upon God for deliverance. And by the way, then Jonah got busy on what he set out to do, didn't he? It says, and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. He had called him the first time and he ran away, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh and that great city and preach the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah rose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. He got in a hurry, didn't he? Three days' journey in a day. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he went. And he went in a hurry. Sometimes we need to just come out of our affliction and decide what God wants us to do and get busy about doing it. And that's what he, he began to do. Let's look at this again. Back in our Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my uh, supplications. He expected God to hear and to respond to his begging. He says, hear my voice. Lord, hear my voice. And then he says, let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Sometimes we have a voice of weeping and a voice of sorrow, and it's a voice of supplication. In verse 3, it says, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? He was conscious here of his unworthiness. He said, God, if you would mark my iniquities, then who should stand? I'm afraid none of us would stand. He could not stand in his own righteousness. And by the way, no one can. You know, we quote a scripture in James that says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That means not only that we have imputed righteousness, but we have the desire to live in the right kind of way. But on the other hand, we cannot claim that we're so righteous that God should hear us. 
we only are righteous because he makes us to be what we are. And if you heard the report tonight of family after family going this way and that way and having all the problems, you can see there's none righteous. No, not one. When we look inside, we can see it. And when we see Christians falling, we'll see that they do not do right. But then we have God's imputed righteousness, but he expects us to live the right kind of life too. Someone says, well, if we're saved by grace, we can live anyway. No, not you can't live anyway just because you're saved by grace. God will chasten you if you live any way that's wrong. If you, if you do wrong, if you go out and deliberately do something wrong against the Word of God and the will of God, and you know it, God's going to chasten you for it. The Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. And just because you're saved by grace, the Bible says, the grace, listen carefully, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us, listen, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. See, the grace that saves you teaches you. A lot of folks say, well, I'm saved by grace so I can live just as I please. No, you cannot live just as you please unless you please to live for God. Because it's, it's wrong. And the very fact that you want to live another way may be an indication that the grace of God that saves and also teaches... And you're being taught, maybe you didn't see that grace of God that saves. You, you've heard this report, haven't you? As Baptists, we're always accused. Well, so-and-so joined the Baptist church and look at that person. Well, I, I've got my questions about that person. There's two things. Either he's out there and God's chastening him to bring him back to, to, to the straight and narrow way. Or he's out there and he just joined the Baptist church and he, he never was saved. One of the two. You see, don't judge the the... The book by the man, judge the man by the book. That's where it comes out. So if you want to live an ungodly life, if you just want to rebel against God, if you just want to go your own way, and do not ever have a desire to want to follow God, in spite of your weakness to do it, we all need help to do it. I'm not not debating that. We all have to have God's strength to do it. But the Bible says the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, listen, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So he changes our lives to be different than what we would be apart from the grace of God. Alright, Psalm one. Uh, 130, verse 3, he says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And we know we all have our weaknesses. And let's look at the next verse. But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. He knew the Lord's nature was to forgive. It's God's right to forgive, and he is ready to forgive instantly. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you see, that's a different thing than rebelling against God, isn't it? If we confess our sins. The Bible says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. It says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. So there's forgiveness of sins. He says that uh, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so we should... Realize that God is ready to forgive us if we'll just confess. In verse 5, I wait for the Lord. 
My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. God promotes, uh, God's mercy promotes godly fear. And we need to wait for the Lord. And also, it says, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. One test of our faith is to wait for the Lord. The Bible says, wait upon the Lord. The Bible tells us, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Get that? Isaiah 40 verse 31. Now what? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. That's flying, isn't it? That's going high. And they shall run and not be weary. That's also pretty good. But it says they shall walk and not faint. They'll not cave in, not give up. They'll keep on walking with God. You have your times that you're going on the the high mountain apart. There's the times that you uh, also uh, can run the race of life. But there's always the time that you need to be steadfast in your walk and not faint. Never give up. Because they're not always, you're not always flying like the eagle and you're not always running like you'll win the race. But you always can walk and walk faithfully. Enoch walked with God and he was not found for God took him. And you know, when, you, when you're when you walking with someone, it's a steady progress. You just keep on going and you don't turn back. You just go hand in hand down the road. Walk. A lot of people have learned to run and learned to fly that never learned to walk. Because see, we don't go with God in spurts. And turns along the way. It's a whole lifetime commitment. If we could get people to realize. You know there are so many people. I've talked to them. They come to Riodosa and they say. You know I used to. I used to what? Used to go to church when I was down in Texas. Or over in Oklahoma. Or out in California or somewhere. I used to go real regular. Well you know. Those used to be's are not for now. What you used to do. Doesn't count. It's like the old burned out wick. You know, we used to have kerosene lamps in the house. In fact, till I went to service in 1940s, in the 40s, when the Japanese war, we didn't have electricity. Came back home and mother had gotten enough money together some way to put some light bulbs in the house. But anyway, to make a long story short, that old wick on that kerosene lamp, brother, when it gets burnt, if you don't trim that off, it, that old chimney and that lamp's going to get black as tar and you can't see a thing. You have to trim that out. It's burned up. It's used up. And your past life, the, it may have given life, it may have given light at some time, but if you've let, if you've not trimmed off that old burnt part of that wick and turned up some new with fresh oil in it, and that's uh, the daily progress in our lives now, well then, you're going to have an awful blackened testimony and there's not going to be any light to see anything. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And I'll guarantee you had to trim it pretty often too. Especially if you kept it late at night to study by. That's all we had to study by in those days was the old kerosene lamp. Sit around the table and talk about light. This thing gives more than the whole house would be lit up with. Turn out all the lights and just leave this on and then then shrink that about half and then you'd have just about what we were reading by. Every light in this room, leave this little bulb on. And then shrink that in about half and you'd have just about the light that would light this whole room. Thank the Lord for light. But anyway, let's, where were we? They that wait upon the Lord. Now then verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. The basis of his faith was in the word of God. The word of God is, is that which gives us uh, strength to go on. 
And let me give you something else. In Psalm 119, verse uh, 81 says, My soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. The word gives us hope. In verse 6 now, it says, My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. You ever just hope that it would become morning? I say more than they that watch for the morning. So, our national hope is in the Lord as well as Israel. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. And with Him is plenteous redemption. By the way, if the national hope for Israel was in the Lord, the national hope of our nation today is in the Lord. The Bible says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And I'm afraid that ours is not. They've got all kinds of God. Gods of humanism. Gods of, of their political aspects and powers and throws. And all of this kind of uh, humanistic ideas that this is their God and the money and the power, and so many things that come down to show that we're not really trusting in God. In fact, we have a lot of people that want us to take the name off our coins and off our money in God we trust, and all the things that are going against uh, God in this nation. I think it's time that some people would stand up against some of the ungodly things that are going on in this nation. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is plenteous redemption. The Lord is able and willing to save all, all people. It says that He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. And then it says, And He shall redeem Israel from all His iniquities. National salvation is promised to Israel. We won't have time to go into to all of the Scriptures, but Israel is promised to be redeemed out of her iniquities in a future time. We know that they rejected the Lord. In the days of Jesus, he turned it over to the Gentiles. And it says in chapter 11 of Romans, verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. He's writing to the Gentiles. That blindness in part has happened to Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So Israel is still in blindness. And it says, And so all Israel shall be saved, for as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverance 